Live from the Mecca, Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. -face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. It is Christmas Eve. People have gotten into the eggnog around here. It's Christmas Eve, 2013. Yes, we are going strong. We pray that the Lord will be with us tonight as we're involved in his ministry, uh, not our own. How about a new spot? Take a look. Eggnog. For him, that's right, for him, and we hope to make it a success. March 1st, 2014, we plan to go live on 19.3 here in the Salt Lake area, actually along the Wasatch Front, the Heart of the Matter television network, giving God a chance to make sense. Pray for us, tell everyone you know about it, support us financially if you're in a position and led of the Lord, and send us your recommendations on programming that you enjoy so we can get working on them to be on the network, realizing that we're gonna ardently strive to stay away from typical Christian television programming that has kind of been around in the past. Okay, go to www.hotm.tv for more information. Again, launch date, March 1st, 2014. Like I said, it's Christmas Eve. Most people are getting stuff done and being with families, relaxing, whatever it is. But here at the factory, we have our faithful volunteers the people who have been around, the regulars uh, present and uh, working. What a blessing it is uh, to uh, be around these people who are serving God on the, the night that, they, that the world celebrates the birth of Christ. So uh, I love them all, grateful to them all, and uh, part of the, the permanent record that... Uh, the, the faithfulness that they exude to try to get this show off the ground, even though it may be an archive show, as none of you are watching live right now. We don't know. Well, it took four minutes to pass before I got a text telling me the fed, a federal judge struck down Utah's ban on same-sex marriage last week, making same-sex marriage legal in the state of Utah. Within 10 minutes, I was told that uh, several homosexual couples had lined up at the courthouse to be married. By the end of the night, I think 121 had been married here in the state of Utah. What do you think about this, Sean? Some people have asked, texts, emails. Some uh, believers have petitioned me to join a battle uh, to fight this with all of our Christian might. 
So I figure I better weigh in on the issue. And since tonight no one's probably watching, I won't get in trouble at all, at least not for a week or so. Like everything else, my stance is from the biblical perspective, not the American evangelical view. And my stance is also based in the life and teachings and example that Jesus and his apostles gave when they walked on the earth and what they focused on and did. So please try and hear what I'm about to say. First of all, nobody on this earth will ever convince me, ever, uh, that homosexual relations uh, relationships are not sinful. Sexual relationships are not sinful. With sin being defined as missing the mark. Sin being defined as missing the mark. God has a target long established in the Garden of Eden, one man with one woman taken from his side, that's the mark, okay? In my opinion, the homosexual community kind of writ large has made a great mistake in trying to get people to, to prove or to show or convince the rest of the world that their sexual expressions hit the mark that God has established. That's what they continue to try to do as a whole, I said, not specifically, and in light of that fact, or in light of the fact, and it's a fact, that human life propagates by the union of sperm and egg, which grows in a female womb, automatically this describes the mark God established in the beginning for humankind. The moment a man can conceive and bear life through the sexual relationships he has with another man will be the moment I defend homosexuality as hitting the mark of God. Until that time, it misses the mark completely. Hopefully, I'm clear on that. But being said, I miss the mark that God has for me as a heterosexual male. Every time I think of relations with a woman who's not my wife, or consider those relationships, or even pursue them. I am uh, as guilty as Jimmy over there who lies to his employer. I and the homosexual is as guilty as Lisa over there who is vain as all get out. All of it is missing the mark. We're a mark missing people. Uh, we will forever as a human race miss the mark. In fact, every one of us has missed the mark and will continue to miss the mark, whether you're hetero or homo or metro or, or mofo, you are gonna miss the mark, all right? So in other words, sin, missing the mark, is part of human nature, and we are human beings. It just thrives and manifests itself in different ways and in different people, right? That being said, I am a sold-out promoter of the complete and total separation of church and state. I do not want the state involved in my religious beliefs any more than I want religious beliefs injected into the operations of the state. The reasons, if you think about it, are pretty self-evident. For example, which religious beliefs will govern the state if we want church and state to mix? Do we want Islam? Do we want Mormonism? Do we want Catholicism? Do we want Presbyterianism? Do we want American evangelicalism to run our government? Is that what we want? I don't want any of those to come in and say they represent me. Some of them are crazy, you know? 
So, and, and why should the state on the other side have any right on telling us what we can and cannot do and believe in the name of God? What does the state know about God? For these very reasons, I think the tax-exempt status of churches is a mistake. It was a mistake. I don't think it, we ever should have agreed to that. Because what it does is the state says, hey, we're going to give you a little benefit here, churches. We move separation together. We're going to let you have tax-exempt status. If, and so people who donate to you, you, they can write that off their taxes, and you don't have to pay taxes on it either, churches. Oh, but one thing about that, you can't speak about anything political, and so therefore they silence uh, the church by holding money over their head. So in my opinion, that's a mistake from the get-go. The separation of church and state, when it's ignored, religions like Mormonism uh, seek to establish their own theocratic government. That's how Utah was established, was on a theocracy where there was no separation of church and state at all. And if it's not the LDS, then it will be the Catholics or the Baptists or whoever can get into power. If separation of church and state is upheld, then... When it comes to issues relative to civil rights, okay, where <clears throat> certain rights or benefits, medical, social, financial, are obtained in and through the status of people uh, obtaining certain lifestyles like being married, <clears throat> then I believe the state has the right to allow for any and all to receive whatever rights are granted by and through such a status being obtained. So if the, if the civil government decides and the people in power decide and the judges decide, this is what we're going to do, to me, because I'm in the church, I don't, I don't care. My kingdom's not of this world. My kingdom's of his. So if the secular world wants to do all this stuff, they're going to do it, and we can see they're doing it more and more. So to fight, it's almost ridiculous. In other words, in terms of civil rights and the benefits obtained by marriage, I believe the state can do what the hell it wants. And the church has no say in the matter at all. I don't think the church has any say. There's a separation. This does not change the stance on the sinful nature of homosexuality, nor does it remove uh, the autonomy the church must have in response to what the civil government has done. So what I mean by this is since the church and state are separate and the state chooses to allow for gay marriage, it also has absolutely no say whatsoever in what individual churches decide to do with marriage in, in, their, uh, in their churches. The, the government cannot tell churches that they have to uh, marry homosexuals. It cannot. There's a separation of church and state. So what we have there is while the secular government might be going down uh, the drain, the churches could remain strong and they could remain autonomous and they could say, we're going to marry men and women like the Bible says and we're standing by that. But when churches decide to get involved with state and vice versa, we lose that right, which is why I have been saying we cannot get involved in this stuff from the beginning. Therefore, it's my opinion that while state may recognize the marriage of a chimpanzee to an elephant, it cannot dictate that the churches must marry chimpanzees and elephants. In summary, I've never believed the church ought to get involved in this stuff. It's a matter of civil rights, the way the, the, way the world is going to go. At the same time, the state has no right to involve itself in how the church views their decision, nor how the, choose, the church chooses to operate. Look, at the world is going to go where it's going to go. 
Uh, it's like trying to stick your hands out and, and stop uh, the Pacific Ocean from forming waves. We're not going to do it. Uh, you put all the people in the world out there, it's not going to do it. The ocean is going to bring forth waves. But I do believe that if a separation of church and state is respected, then the churches ought to be completely free to do as they wish without the threat of state sanctions if it so chooses to refuse on religious grounds to marry elephants and chimps. Finally, I would appeal to what Jesus said about marriage. And you don't hear this. I've never heard this uh, by a Christian used. And remember, he said, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage. That's what he said. And so this world has its gig going on. And the children of this world, they marry and are given in marriage. It's not that marriage isn't ordained of God, but the children of this world are, in, are really wrapped up in that. And, and, and what a better description of what we're seeing today and what marriage is becoming. So there it is for the record, and probably there goes another 25% of our financial support. All right, well, the LDS Church has done it again, another press release, and yes, it is like the press release on race and the priesthood, a little more honest than they typically have been, and it also remains duplicitous, so we're going to work our way through it before we get to our message tonight. You ready? The title of the article we released a number of weeks ago is Polygamy, Latter-day Saints, and the Practice of Plural Marriage. This is the first part. The release says polygamy, or more correctly, polygyny, the marriage of more than one woman to the same man was an important part of the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for half a century. Now, that statement in and of itself is remarkable for them to even say it was an important part. So we are hearing some honesty. They know they can't get around it now. They know it is out there in spades. But what is interesting is they say polygyny uh, was, uh, was where one woman uh, where more than one woman is married to the same man, they don't mention polyandry, where more than one man is married to a single woman, and that was part of the early church as well, documented. They don't mention that at all. Um, so, and uh, don't you love the way also that right off the bat, they kind of set themselves up in these press releases as the definitive voice, um, polygamy, or more correctly, <clears throat> polygyny, like they are the ones who are teaching us about what it's all about. Uh, anyway, admittedly, they do say it was an important part of the teachings of the LDS Church. That is true. They say for the first half century, for a half century, that's 50 years. That is not true. See, Joseph Smith got polygamy going with Fanny Alger, who was a, his little housemaid, 15 years old, uh, in 1831 or 32. He had secretly married her by that time, all right? And so when the LDS leaders really stopped the practice of polygamy, and I don't mean with the Manifesto of 1890, but I mean about 1901, they put the thumb down and said, no more, because we're gonna lose statehood. Uh, we're talking 70 years has passed. So when they say for a half of a century, we're, we're talking about uh, almost 50% more than that estimate. Polygamy was important to the church for nearly 40% of its history that it's existed, 40%. So let's just talk. Uh, you're not gonna hear him say that, but let's just talk that way, because that's the truth. The press release goes on and says, the practice began during the lifetime of Joseph Smith, but became publicly and widely known during the time of Brigham Young. That is a really nice way to say, Joseph Smith started taking on extra secretly 
almost from the beginning of the church. And it was only when Brigham Young got everybody out here to Utah and isolated them that they practiced it openly and, and so everybody could see. It goes on. Today, the practice of polygamy is strictly prohibited in the church as it has been for over 120 years. Notice the wordsmithing. Today, the practice of polygamy, the practice is strictly prohibited, failing to mention that the principle of it remains alive in the church today. At this point, the, the, the spin stuff really starts flowing. Listen to this. In 1831, church founder Joseph Smith made a prayerful inquiry about the ancient Old Testament practice of plural marriage. This resulted in the divine instruction to reinstitute the practice as a religious principle. This paragraph is cunning. There's no better way to describe it. It is a cunning paragraph. It says, divine instruction, God, that's what it means, God said to reinstitute the practice he never instituted the practice in the first place. So for him to reinstitute it is not true. He never instituted it. So there couldn't have been a reinstitution. And they say as a religious principle, all right? So Smith did not uh, institute the principle as a religious practice. I mean, Smith instituted the principle as a religious practice, there's a difference. The way they put it makes it sound like the practice of taking on extra wives was done as a religious principle, that there was no like sex involved. It was a principle that they followed of taking on the wives. But by the way they put that, if you read it carefully, they're trying to say, this was really just something God said you have to do, so they did it, and there was never conjugal visits, all right? But uh, it was presented as a religious principle by Smith and Young in order to dive into the practice. So the practice really is what drove it. The principle came second. Uh, and that was sex with a lot of women while at the same time being able to control them. That's what it ultimately came down to. If they're married, there's nothing wrong with sex and marriage. And if you're marrying them, you know, I don't know why we will argue, well, they weren't having, what's that even mean? If they're married, they're married. So. Here comes the poor and sufferable us part of the, uh, of the press release. Latter-day Saint converts in the 19th century had been raised in traditional monogamous homes and struggled with the idea of a man having more than one wife. It was as foreign to them as it would be to most families today in the Western world. Even Brigham Young, who was later to have many wives and children, confessed to his initial dread of the principle of plural marriage. Oh, they were good men, weren't they? Good men. They took one for the team, went out and, and yeah, they took on some extra wives, but God, God made them. Ah, oh, good men of Brigham and, and Joseph. <sighs> Subsequently, it says, in 1890, President Wilford Woodruff, fourth president of the United States, received what Latter-day Saints believed to be a revelation in which God withdrew the command to practice plural marriage he issued what has come to be known as the Manifesto, a written declaration to church members and the public at large that stopped the practice of plural marriage. Okay, so let me point something out. This manifesto was written in 1890. We have documented proof by D. Michael Quinn and others. Rutger Clausen was sent to the 
he was used as a, as a scapegoat for this whole deal. They issued a manifesto and they gave it out because they wanted the, gov the federal government to believe we are stopping this. Polygamy was still behind the scenes by the leaders, prophet and apostles, pushed upon men that in order to become gods, they had to practice the principle. So behind closed doors, they were practicing it all the way for another 13, 12 or 13 years. That manifesto meant nothing when it came to what the Mormons actually did, you see. But like everything the LDS do, uh, uh, the public representation said one thing, but the secret private representation was completely another. So again, the real abandonment of the practice of the eternal principle didn't occur until the 1900s. Quote, later, describing the reasons for the manifesto, President Wolford Woodruff told church members, quote, the Lord showed me by vision and revelation exactly what would take place if we did not stop this practice. If we had not stopped it, you would have had no use for any of the men in this temple, for all temple sacraments would be stopped throughout the land. Confusion would reign, and many men would be made prisoners. This trouble would have come upon the whole church, and we should have been compelled to stop the practice, end quote. So then we get the big old dose of Mormonicious language now to swallow. You ready for that big teaspoon? Open your mouths. Here it comes. Today, church members honor and respect the sacrifices made by those who practiced polygamy in the early days of the church. However, the practice is outlawed in the church and no person can practice plural marriage and remain a member. Today's church members honor and respect the sacrifices made by those who practice polygamy. That's how they're gonna put it in their press release? That the, the Mormons are looking back and saying, thank you for sacrificing and practicing that principle. Thank you for doing that. I'd like to rewrite what it should say for these geniuses up on North Temple. Maybe it should say, today church leadership apologizes to all the women who bought into this lie as heartfelt means to please God, their husbands, and the leaders of the church. We are sorry for all you went through and for this church allowing men to prey upon your good intentions. However, the practice is outlawed in the church and no person can practice plural marriage and remain a member. This being said, we do allow for men to continue to be married in our temples to as many individual women as he'd like, as long as they're coming in one at a time, so he can enjoy an abundance of female companionship in the life hereafter. That's all true. And that's what they don't mention. Then, in the most Mormonicious move yet, these guys have the audacity to quote part of the Book of Mormon, which actually condemns polygamy. Uh, this was brought to my attention. Someone called Derek, and Derek called me to show that monogamy has always been the standard fare of the church. Okay, let me just tell you really quickly, and then we'll get to prayer and go into our topic. This is how, this is how it worked, okay? The Book of Mormon was typically, is basically a Christian book narrative. Basically follows the Bible, and there's a, three or four places that it off, which is enough. But basically, Joseph copied what the Bible message is in general, assigned it to a different land and place. When he produced that book, he was very young, and the book talked about very typical Christian things. In the Book of Mormon, polygamy is denounced, all right? After the Book of Mormon was published, Joseph starts practicing polygamy. I think it was on his heart, and he was probably denouncing it, trying to, trying to somehow psychologically say, I can't do it, I can't do it. And then he had a revelation that said he's going to do it. 
And then we have the Doctrine and Covenants and all these other books come along and revelations about polygamy, polygamy. But the LDS Church today uses the Book of Mormon's quote about banning polygamy in order to show that they have always been for monogamy. So what the quote said is, I mean, this is what they say, the standard doctrine of the church is monogamy as it always has been, as indicated in the Book of Mormon, and it quotes what the Book of Mormon says. Now, here's the thing. It says, as it always has been, for the first 40% of the church history, it was not it was not monogamy. It was polygamy. That's how long polygamy has been involved. So when they say the standard doctrine as it always has been is not true. Mormons have almost always been polygamists, or at least 50% of their history has been polygamists. So this is not true. And then they add, the article adds, in other words, the standard of the Lord's people is monogamy unless the Lord reveals otherwise. Latter-day Saints believe the uh, season the church practiced polygamy was one of these exceptions. So let's get this all straight before we go to prayer. They say the standard practice of the Lord's people is monogamy, but they have practiced and they continue to perform polygamous marriages for the hereafter even to this day. They use the Book of Mormon narrative, which condemns the practice, but fail to talk about the fact that their founder clearly and plainly taught that polygamy was necessary for any male to become a god. They don't even address that. This religion is man. It's more man. It's, uh, it's, it's men scrambling for their own indulgences and power. For the sake of all those who remain inside and who are beguiled by this rhetoric, don't back down. Call them on these uh, press releases because what they're doing, if you can't see it, they're doing the same thing they did way back in 2005, 6, and 7 in, pre in preparation for 2008. They are getting ready to groom politically. It's happening again. They are, we're going to uh, talk about something that happened with K-Love after we uh, go through this. They're, they are constantly, now they're doing all these press releases to try to clear up finally all this stuff so people will say, you're Christian, let's move forward and dominate the world. So with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you and seek you and need you. Pray that you will uh, be with those who view the program, uh, whether tonight or in the future in the archives or on YouTube or on the NRB channel, that uh, you will open up our eyes and ears to the things you want us to know and we will seek you in spirit and truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, two weeks ago, in an effort to offer another view of soteriology, which means how God redeems man, other than five-point Calvinism and full-blown Arminianism, which is essentially what the LDS view is, we touched on the biblical concept of total reconciliation, or the notion that says, one, God is totally sovereign, two, his will will always be accomplished, Three, he is love, and being love, he will from the beginning, his will, excuse me, from the beginning, is that all mankind would be saved. Then three or four, his son therefore paid for the sins of the entire world. Five, that by and through his foreknowledge, God allows men to choose to receive his son, but knowing that they would, what they would choose, he works all things to his ultimate will and ways. And six, finally, some will come to him freely in this life by faith, 
They are first fruits, and others may take, as we might say, the long way home. In the face of this, we introduced two weeks ago the idea of first fruits. Here we admitted that when it comes to a harvest, whether it be a, fr- a field of wheat or fruit from a tree or human beings, the first fruits of a harvest are God's. These are the true believers who are here on earth now. If you're a Christian believer, you're part of the first fruits. <clears throat> then there is the more general harvest. And finally, there is the coming in and getting the gleanings, everything that fell and dropped off and was left behind to take up and gather so that nothing would be lost. We mentioned that James said, talking about the church, ready? Of his own will, of his own goodwill and pleasure, begat he us with the word of truth. That's talking about believers. According to his election based on his foreknowledge, that we believers, listen, should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What that says is that believers in the church, those who have been uh, redeemed by his word of truth, they represent the first fruits of all of his creatures. I would challenge anybody who argues against total reconciliation to explain that passage to me. I want to understand what that means in some other way. So let's continue on and see if we can support the notion of total reconciliation as we prepare to look at specific examples next week, which will be the last part of this, and then we're going to move on 2014 to other uh, areas. But we're going to really show the examples of what's going on in the Bible relative to the word aeon, aeonus, and eternal, and uh, and uh, destroy, and all those words that people will bring up and say, this is what scripture says. We're going to look at the Greek to see what it says. But two weeks ago, I admittedly said some bold things. I first suggested that hell, more properly, the time that rebellious human beings will spend in the lake of fire is limited. And I, uh, we will take note the differences between hell and the lake of fire next week. I also intimated that since we know God is love and since we know he is all-knowing from before the time he ever created us, and since his will and desires are always accomplished by and through his foreknowledge, not by force, the only way to merge all of these facts, and these are biblical facts, folks, into a cohesive working model is to ultimately suggest that he will use every approach necessary, the Holy Spirit, the blood of his son that covers all men, trial, hell, lake of fire, to bring all to him some way and some day. In this way, I suggested God would, through a number of different means, accomplish his goodwill and desires by and through his son, only through his son. There is no other way. His son is the one who made this all possible. <clears throat> but all this is superficial if the Bible says otherwise, right? I get that. And I want nothing to do, honestly, I stand before God, I want nothing to do with a doctrine that is not validated by a contextual examination of the Bible. Why is it that modern Christianity since Augustine have accepted the idea that punishment after this life is eternal and that reconciliation is anything but total? In fact, according to them, very few will make it, and they take Jesus straight as the gate narrows the way, few be there that find it. I absolutely agree, and I'll explain that. It's because, is it because there are so many passages 
in the word, especially if you read the King James, that appear to support the idea of a fiery punishment that never, ever, 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 ever ends? Probably. So among other things, it's going to be incumbent upon me to try to explain why these terms of eternality applied to afterlife suffering have been misunderstood and worse, are completely wrong. So before getting into that word study, a couple of points I'd like you to consider that might add to your general comprehension of afterlife punishment and this brief study of it. And I think that these points will help you see the position more clearly. It's an inflamma. It's an inflammatory discussion. People are getting angry about this. Look, at this. let me make these points. There are issues to die on in Christianity. The virgin birth, resurrection, divinity of Jesus, salvation by grace through faith, period. Infallibility of the word of God. In my opinion, all of these are worth splitting company over. And I hope you would agree. But there are a bunch of hills that have long divided the body and churches that ought to have never had such an effect. Eschatology and end times, forget about it. I mean, if you think you know what is what on that, I can bring an expert on here to, to counter you. And that expert can be countered by another expert who has the absolute opposite view. Calvinism, Arminianism, preterism, mode of baptism, Creation being literally six 24-hour periods. Don't worry about it. Walk in faith, smile, trust the Lord, because almost every issue demands some sort of give and take among us as believers. It, it, we're just going to have to admit that. I would suggest, strongly suggest, that the idea of hell and or the lake of fire uh, and the natural result of it being total reconciliation should not be used as a point of division. I don't see how, why believers should not uh, break bread one with another because one person believes that God will, after who knows how long, allow the reprobates through the blood of Jesus Christ who cry out to him in, in screaming repentance to come into his presence. And those who say no, they're gonna be burning forever and ever and ever and they never get out. Why that would divide us except that Satan's will. There's nothing about the belief that should alter our walk, our pursuit of others missionally our hope and joy in being Christ. Additionally, and I hope this is obvious, but additionally, there are great blessings. There's unfathomable depth that comes when people choose Jesus in this life. To receive and believe on Jesus by faith while we are alive, uh, I has not seen the glories that await those who believe. I do not at all downplay the benefit of being a Christian now and choosing him now and the importance of choosing him now. Let me tell you why. Believers have him with us here knowing we have been cleansed from sin. Isn't that worth something? Isn't that worth something? You guys were writing me and saying, what's the point if everybody's going to be saved? Believers have the power, according to John, to become the sons and daughters of God, something that those who go to the lake of fire would never, because not even all believers become sons and daughters of God. According to scripture, we have the power to become those things in love. Believers will be called forth in the first resurrection while all of those who did not believe remain in hell waiting to be called up in the second. Is that not a beautiful benefit of being a believer in Christ and, and, and trusting him now in this life? Believers will be crowned by God and, and, and we will be pleasing to God. 
I mean, can you imagine being someone who, who went through the suffering of this life as a Christian and you die and, and God receives you, how, he, how, how much he loves you for your allegiance to him, your faithfulness, your love? Believers are part of the body of Christ here on earth and then in the hereafter. And then believers all bypass the dark horrors of hell, which are unfathomable when it comes to what it would feel like or be like, I can't imagine, and the miserable purging lake of fire altogether, which may last what seems like an eternity to those who are in it. There's no time or space there. Who knows what time in the lake of fire will feel like to somebody? Who knows, maybe, maybe they're in there for a trillion years. I don't know, but philosophically, it can't be eternal. It, because the rest of the Bible won't work in how it describes God. So we escape all of those things as believers. We're blessed with all of those things as believers. We're sons and daughters of God as believers if we allow him to work in us. We have all these blessings, and I am totally dumbfounded when people come at me and say stuff like this email we received today where Dustin says, look at these, this, he said this, what is the point then of the suffering in life? What a waste of time for Jesus to teach about broad is the way of destruction if everyone will be saved. He should have finished with destruction, but added, but hey, everyone will eventually be saved. The point is not that. You, every time a Christian comes and argues, well, what's the point? They miss. They obviously don't know the point of being a Christian. They obviously don't realize what it means to be a Christian saved by grace through faith in this life. They obviously don't have any concept of what hell would be like. They, they just say, oh, they get saved too? Well, I'm just gonna give up. And you know what that says to me? Their faith is really shallow. That They're in this for some strange reason. They're not in this because they love God and they have a relationship with him. And when other people hear the concept, they say, well, wow, you know, what a blessing to, to have received him. We escape hell. We're going to be in the first resurrection. We're going to be the firstborn, the first fruits of many. And they talk about all the benefits of being a Christian. But the ones who don't understand it are like, well, I'm going to, everybody gets to, then, you know, what's the big deal? I don't understand it. Such positions completely ignore the blessing and goodness of being Christians now, of being called his, of suffering for him, buying through the baptism of fire that we experience when we're in our flesh. Um, even more astounding is that such views infer that hell and the lake of fire awaiting rebellious unbelievers is just not that bad. That's probably part of the problem. We have to teach when we are teaching about hell that it is a horrible place. It's some place you want to escape. It's a place you want to be redeemed from. So when you die, you're not absent from the body, present in hell. It's not a place. But for some reason, just to say that it doesn't last forever makes people ballistic, and they want it to be forever. And I haven't even given you the proof when it comes to the text, which will convince you, I am sure. Listen, critics, you are the ones who are changing scripture. You are the ones that are intimating that hell and the lake of fire are either a cakewalk, cakewalk and you also are then doing something that is, is not conscionable. You are saying, you are teaching people that it is this way in order for, for the gospel message to be more effective. 
And you, you say to me, it's, it's not as effective if you say God loves you, he is gonna work, you, work it out. Well, you don't say that to a non-believer. You tell them hell's a reality. You tell them the lake of the fire is a reality. You tell them it's, not, you, it's something you wanna uh, avoid and Jesus loves you so much, he gave his life for the whole world, pay for all sin, and you can receive him now and you can be part of his body and be of the first fruits and be of the first resurrection and all these things. All right. We have a call, Curtis. Um, let me finish one more thing. Well, stay with me, and we will continue on uh, finishing up this, this year, next week, and then we're going to move on into other things in the Mormon Christian debate, uh, because I don't want to read this last part. It's not that important. Let's go to Curtis in Clearwater, Florida, the Calvinist. Curtis, Curtis, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, Merry Christmas. Thank you. Well, I just wanted to call in real quick. I don't know if you remember our exchanges from uh, a few weeks ago or not, but uh, I, I just got a couple things to say about what you've been talking about tonight. Yeah. First thing I'd like to comment on is your gay marriage statement, or yeah. I guess just gay marriage in general. Yeah. And that is, uh, I think it's, truthfully, I think it's a fake issue. I mean, realistically, um, the government should just not be involved in marriage. If government just pulled itself out of marriage and treated everybody in America the same, regardless of whether they were married or single, the whole problem would disappear, and people can do whatever they want on their own. Well, um, it's, a, it's a nice thought, but that's not what the government does when it comes to civil rights. Well, it's not really a matter of civil rights. I mean, it obviously marriage, is a matter of civil is a religious, rights. Well, marriage is a religious uh, institution. It's something that people well, choose to, to engage in. To religious Government people. doesn't have to treat people to religious people because it's, they're married. To religious people, it's a religious experience. But to non-religious people, to atheists, it has nothing to do with religion. So what are you okay, talking that's about? That's fine, and that's what I'm saying, is that if the government pulls itself out of the situation, if, if atheists or if gay people or if anybody else wants to get married, they can get married. And how, I mean, even as of right now, I used to be married. I was married at one time. It was going into a building, saying, I love you, going to a reception hall, and then going off and living the rest of your life together. All right. Uh, really, there's no law that stops gay people from doing that right now. It's all yeah. just about whether or not the government recognizes well, their quote-unquote marriage. But wait, but wait. What is the purpose of the government recognizing or not recognizing? It's for tax benefits, isn't it? It could be for tax benefits. Well, that's, that's a civil matter, if the my government friend. Removed anything like that. It's, uh, well, now it, you're talking about an issue. Now you're talking about going backward and restructuring everything. What's the problem? Why do you care? Jesus said, "I mean, Curtis, hey, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage. Why do you even focus on gay people getting married? Well, how is that going to affect well, you?" Bother me. What? It doesn't. It doesn't really bother me. I, I pretty much have come to terms with the fact that gay marriage is eventually just going to be the normal thing here. It really doesn't bother me that gay people get married. It, Absolutely. That's my point, is that the government just shouldn't be involved in marriage for anybody straight or single. Well, or I, single. I would agree with that in a utopian sense, but we're not going to get that. So, you know, I agree with you. That would be wonderful if it, if it stayed where it, be, where it began, which is God, you know, ordaining uh, marriage and sanctifying it. I would agree with you. But it's, in this world, it's not happening. So let's just be more pragmatic and say, okay, 
how can we salvage something out of this situation? And the way we do it is we say more separation of church and state. And if you're going to let gays get married, fine. Don't put it on us that we have to as well. That's my only thing I'm saying, trying to salvage something beneficial out of it. Well, I, don't take me, you know, I'm not attacking your position by any means. I don't right. disagree with you. I'm just saying that I think the whole topic itself is a fake issue. The government just needs to get itself out of people's personal relationships. And if that happens, everybody wins. No more issue. But uh, what you're talking about tonight with um, uh, Calvinism and, and predestination and all that, I sent you an email a while ago and I never got a reply to it. But this is your, your belief that people can be saved after death. The only thing that I have, or I guess the biggest issue I have with that, is the Bible is very, very clear that faith is the key to salvation. Okay. It says in Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Mm -hmm. Meaning faith is hoping for something not seen. Okay. John 3.16, and, and you know, obviously countless other places, for God so loved the world who are, uh, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So if belief slash faith is the basis of being saved, but you cannot believe in what you have already seen, people cannot be saved after death because they cannot have faith. Okay, wait. Are you telling me that people after death who go to hell and lake of fire uh, are stripped of faith because they have seen God? Well, I'm saying that Faith is only possible in if you cannot in something that you have not seen. You cannot have faith in something that you know exists. Okay. If somebody is dead and has been raised from life and has seen the Lord and has seen all of that, they cannot have faith okay. in the Lord. But aren't you reading? Already seen him. But aren't you reading into the text to believe that people who go to hell and the lake of fire have seen the Lord? Well, they have seen where they are. They have seen the that truth. That doesn't I mean, mean anything. believe that they eventually come to know the truth. How can they know the truth if they don't see it? Okay, the other argument that I have with you, Curtis, and, and I still think there's something, too, we don't know what is going to be seen or not seen in hell or the lake of fire. But the other point I have for you is, um, Curtis, uh, is on your faith premise, because Scripture is saying that, isn't this book our manual for life here to get us to escape hell and death and get to be his sons and daughters. Isn't this talking about this realm and so we apply it to now? Well, I, mean, I can only talk for what I see in our reality. I can't speak for the next existence, but I can tell you what the Bible says. And the Bible says that you have, I mean, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Nothing else, only faith. faith. I mean, you look through the Bible, faith is the only thing that I, I, I agree with you when it you comes to. You cannot have faith in something you've already seen. I, okay, if you've I'll, seen hell, if you've, you believe that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to God, I believe that too. And, uh, it, but you're reading into that too because you're saying that's going to be forced. Well, no, I believe that every person is going to be raised at the end times. They're going to be. They're going to see God in front of them. They're going to bow. They're not going to have an option because they're going to see God in all of his glory. It's going to be something greater than anything they've ever seen before. They're not going to have any choice other than to bow and confess to God. And then I believe okay. they will be thrown into the lake of fire and destroyed. I've told you I'm an, an annihilationist. I think they will be gone forever. Well, I would be an annihilationist if I wasn't a, a reconciliationist. 
because the other option makes absolutely no sense to me. Annihilationism was Ellen uh, G. White's uh, great little gig that she threw in there, and, and that's, that's very beneficial, but I don't think that's biblical. Curtis, let me get to the chance next week of talking about how uh, uh, Augustine influenced the translation of the King James and the words eternal and aeon uh, and aenos and all those words and how they don't mean what we read them to mean. And we had to go to a, a literal Greek translation to get it. And the guys who do, I challenge you to go to Tentmakers. Go to tentmakers.com and look to see what they're doing there because they have more information than any ministry in the world about reconciliation. Check them out and just look at their arguments. Well, do you have anything in specific to annihilationism? I, I am not a Seventh-day Adventist. I am not a supporter of Ellen G. White. That is not something I believe. Right. I will admit that I did pick up the idea from them and from reading the Bible. I think yeah. they've got uh, some things figured out, and obviously not everything. But uh, I, I read annihilationism, and then I read the Bible, and every time I read about hell, I read about destruction. It's, it says it's eternal. It says that it's, it's fiery pit. It says all these various things. It says it's like wheat thrown into a fire. It burns up. What happens when you throw wheat into fire? It just turns into ash. Yeah. It's not something that gets salvation. It's just gone. Okay. Uh, so the only places in the Bible where it seems anything other than people just thrown in and just gone is in the Lazarus parable in Luke, talking about the rich man and Lazarus. And that's all wrapped within a parable, and none of the imagery makes sense within the context of the rest of the Bible, especially with Revelations and the end times. Okay, Curtis. In, in the book of Revelations, the Bible says that the smoke of these Curtis, people will rise up forever and ever. Curtis, I don't, I have, you have to understand, I take my time in presenting stuff because I'm building cases. I've always done it this way. Everything you're saying to me, every single point I have seen, and, and I'm going to bring them out. So uh, you're gonna hear very reasonable uh, responses to all that you're saying. I, I'm not taking this lightly, but you gotta give me a chance on that. I wanna know, I wanna know, cause you're not a Calvinist, I know that. Do you believe that God is sovereign? Of course, absolutely. I okay. believe he is 100% sovereign. Okay. Everything all right. we do I, is controlled by You can by say him. yes and I would get, okay? You believe he's sovereign. Does, does is his will, that all would be saved. His will is that all of his chosen will be saved, all of his elect. Okay, so his will is not that all would be saved. I believe that all that he wants to be saved will be saved. Okay, so then his, it is not his will that all would be saved. Well, the word all def is, is encompassing a lot of different things. All, I think that all means I, all, I Curtis. I think there are different kinds of people in the world. Curtis, I mean, Curtis, all men, all humankind. Is it well, God? you say all, do you believe I, that animals will be saved? All humankind. Believe that? All humankind. It is doesn't it, say all humankind, it says all will be saved. Do you it, believe that animals will be saved? Animals don't read the Bible, Curtis. It the doesn't Bible, say anything about animals, you having to read the Bible to be saved. If you believe all will be saved, Curtis, you believe that animals will all be saved? All animals are not included in the Bible. The Bible is talking to people. And it says all would be saved. When you yes, read, it does say all okay. will be saved. I mean, if you're okay, trying no, wait a to define I, just, the word wait, all. Wait, I'm asking the way you. you want to define I'm the word I'm asking you, Curtis. I'm asking you plainly. You can say yes and no. You won't. You believe God is oh, saved. Wait, you said, be, wait, Curtis. All, me, of the God, just, all the people that God wants to be saved will be so saved. So then he does not want all humankind to be saved. 
I don't believe all humans can be put into the same category. That's not the question. If he's sovereign, you said he's sovereign, he has his will done, is his will that all would be saved or not? Yes or no? Okay. If you want to define every human being in the same category, no. He does not okay. want everyone and to be guess what? I do not believe all humans can be put into the same category, though. Oh, really? I think you're trying to be... God is not a respecter of man, Curtis. God is not a respecter of man. What do you mean you can't put all humans in the same category? We are all uh, the same. What are you talking about? No, I think about? that God created some people for destruction and some people for not destruction. Maybe. You're going to have to look at what destruction means. But God, in his foreknowledge, knew what people would be like. But is it his will that all would be saved? You say no. So let me ask I, you, is God love? I, I told you this, yes, God is love. Okay, so God is love, God is sovereign, but God does not want everybody to be saved. You're an interesting man. It your, doesn't, it doesn't your, logically... It's the definition Curtis, of Curtis, word, it does not measure all, up. It doesn't measure up, Curtis. It doesn't, you can't say he is loving, you can't say he is love, and you can't say he's sovereign that if and and you and you're speaking against scripture now when you say he doesn't desire that all would be saved he does it's his expressive will and it's his permissive will the conversation we're having is about the word all right now no all means all just like sex means sex bill clinton no, Did but you, you have say sex all means all, then I ask you if it means animals, and you say it doesn't mean animals because you don't define it as it, meaning no, animals. No, the Bible is not written for animals. It's talking about human beings there. Animals are living beings. I'm okay, not asking let's you if the step Bible back, is written then. for let's step animals. Back. I'm asking you if people let's step are going to be resurrected. Let's step back. Do you think animals let's, will be resurrected in let's return? Let's step back. You're not going to take me down a, a, a red herring trail, Curtis. Let's step back. Did Jesus pay? This isn't pay? a red herring did, trail. This did, is about did, the definition of the word did all. Did Jesus pay for the sins of all the world? Yes. I, I told okay, you, wait and a I second. know you don't wait, like it. Wait. He paid for all the sins of the world. So Jesus suffered for people on the cross that God knew he didn't want to be saved? I'm, I can't hear you. I lost you. Well, it was a convenient time to lose me, Curtis. No, no, I hear you now. I hear you. Okay, okay well, Curtis, Jesus, you just said you agree that Jesus paid for the sins of every human being. Right? Yeah. But he, he, did, he, did, he did that. In, in, in from the foundation of the world, Scripture says, and this is for a God, on behalf of God, reconciling God to man, man to God, for a God who doesn't want all man to be saved. Why is he? Why are we going about this? Why do we have so many disconnects in this discussion? Well, there's not a, a big disconnect. If you want to know what I honestly think, I think that there are certain human beings that are made. I guess. To put it in the most blunt terms, with souls and human beings who are not with souls, human beings who are here to just be part of the story that God is telling Unreal. the people who have Unreal. souls. If it, that's the most blunt Cur way of putting it. Curtis, that blunt way are the seeds of genocide. That blunt way are the, that's not, I have, they're the I seeds of genocide. That's how, that, thinking, God that, thinking, that thinking allows people to say there are superior races in the end. You are really on a slippery slope. With races. This has nothing to do with races. Look, you're just said, and, put it and bluntly, yes, there are, you're, I mean, you're putting... Certain people who God did, it has nothing to do with race. 
those certain people that let's say let's say they are soulless like you said they don't love their families they don't work their job to pay their kids medical expenses these people are just you know they're just soulless and God that God makes men the way men make machines he makes men to do certain functions yeah and, and there are certain men that, he, that are just here for the purpose of doing their function. And there are other men here who wow. he has bestowed something else upon, his elect. Hey, Curtis, the- Curtis, we have another call. But listen, you are really, really, uh, you're a smart guy, obviously, but you are really off track, my brother. This is, this is not biblical. It is, it is very slippery slope. It's dangerous. Uh, I wish you a Merry Christmas. Keep watching. We'll keep talking. See if we can work through some of this stuff. But give me a chance with the original languages to talk about eternal hell. I had to do that. All right. Jason, you're on Heart of the Matter. Jason? Jason? Hey. Merry Christmas, John. Merry Christmas, Jason. How are you? Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Hey, you know, I've always been a great supporter of you, and I agree with pretty much 99.9% of what you say. Yeah. A quick question for you. Maybe you could shed some new light on me. Um, you say that everyone, I agree God is love. I'm not, you know, disagreeing with, with that, but the question is, in the Bible it says, you know, if we confess with our mouth, we're saved, but whoever doesn't confess that Jesus is God, Lord, and all that stuff would be condemned. Yeah, absolutely. Condemned where, where to? Hell, lake of fire, punishment, distant from God, suffering, misery, darkness, woe, pain, gnashing of teeth, weeping and wailing, things we want people to avoid. But will that be forever? Uh, if it's forever, I'm going to ask you a question, okay, Justin, Jason? Yeah, sure, go ahead. All right. If it's forever, what is its purpose? Because you haven't confessed that Jesus is God and Lord. Okay, so what is its purpose? They're never getting out. They die. They're never, ever, ever, ever getting out because they were rebellious. What's its purpose? Why does God have them in there if it's forever and they never get out? Think about it. Because they chose not. Not because, not why are they in there. Uh, It's what is God's purpose of putting them in there forever and ever. What's the purpose? There's only one answer if it's forever. It's punishment. Exactly. All right. And what you're saying is God has taught us in 1 Corinthians 13 that love never fails. He tells us to forgive and forgive and forgive. He tells us to do all these things, and and it says God is love, and yet the majority of the creations are going to go into hell, and they'll never, ever get out. And if they never get out, there's no purpose for it, meaning when they get out, they will have been redeemed somehow by whatever process God is using through Jesus' blood, then it's only for God to say, you're going to suffer. The only purpose eternal hell could be is for people to suffer. That would be God's, there's no other reason. If they're in suffering and it never ends, then the fact that it never ends means it's for God to make them suffer. And that is incongruent 
with a loving God who loves us far more than we love each other that we love him. I mean, you take, wait, one more more thing, Jason. Take your worst enemy, your worst enemy. Someone rapes your mother, kills your son, and eats all your food. How long do you want him burning? How long, Jason? Give me a number. Give me a number. 100,000 years? Two million? Forever, from everlasting to everlasting. Okay, that's, a, that's not translated right, and we're going to prove that next week. Oh, but, you know what I mean? I mean, forever, so, you know, forever. I, you know, if I would say, you know, I think 400 billion years is enough, if I, as a wicked man, would say that, what do you think the Father of Lights and Good Gifts and Love would say? It's just Augustine who influenced the church. It has nothing to take away from Jesus Christ. It does, it does nothing to diminish what he has done for us. It, in fact, heightens him. It shows his love. And he wants to save people from that misery that they will go to. So there's a benefit to being a Christian. I praise and thank God that he saved a wretch like me. And, the, and, and Jason, we're going to let you go. Come back next week. We're out of time. And, 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 and no, uh, you know, we're, we're celebrating his birth tonight. Uh, he's born tomorrow, that's how we celebrate it. What a gift that he came and he redeemed this world. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe on him should not perish, I know, but would have everlasting life. That translation of that, but will have aeonous life, an age of life. We have to read it right. We're gonna talk about that next week. This does not diminish from God, it enhances him. There is a hell, there is a lake of fire, there is punishment. Now is the time to receive Christ Jesus. But let's get real with what the Bible says and who God is. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. Woo! Good job, Bobby.